Good, creation and God's word. Creation and God's word. These are the two books of Revelation. Um, what is the word of God? What is the word of God? Violet? The authoritative, sufficient, and inspired word of God. Yes. Uh, what is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? Noella? Yes, three persons in one essence, or one essence in three persons. Um, we also then consider G who Jesus was. Do you remember what identity Jesus has within the Trinity? Who is Jesus? He is the... Violet? He is the what? You want to phone a sister, Annabelle? Eternally begotten Son of God. Good. And the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, then we've been looking at creation. We've been looking at providence. We've been looking at uh, the fall into sin, original sin. You may recall last week we, we considered how we all are born into this world united to Adam. And in Adam, we receive the guilt of Adam's sin and thus are totally corrupt. Well, today you'll notice the Belgian Confession is, is turning to consider redemption, God's grace. And thus it begins with election and reprobation. Now, of course, this is a topic, this is a doctrine that is pretty controversial within the broader Christian community. In fact, you yourself this morning might find yourself struggling with this doctrine. You may not fully understand this doctrine. You may not fully agree with every part of this doctrine. Or you may have been in situations in the past where you've been challenged on this doctrine and have struggled to explain yourself or defend what you believe when it comes to predestination or election and reprobation. So if you can resonate with any of those categories, then this article is for you. This short three-sentence article provides a very helpful, very cogent, very concise explanation and defense of the glorious doctrine of election. And this article uh, frames the issue in a very pedagogically helpful way. And so you'll notice that it begins with a review of original sin, the fall of Adam. It then speaks about God's mercy in election and God's justice in reprobation. And so those are the three main points we're going to uh, turn our attention to. Adam's fall, first. Second, God's mercy in election. And third, God's justice in reprobation. So first... First, you'll notice that the Belgic Confession begins this article by saying, We believe that all Adam's descendants, having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man. This opening line of Article 16 is summarizing what we confessed in Article 15 and 14 with the creation and fall of man and original sin. In Adam's sin, sinned we all. Adam was, was made in the image of God, but yet Adam lent his ear to the devil, and thus he transgressed the commandment of life and plunged himself and all of his descendants into a state of sin and misery. In Adam's sin, sinned we all, and therefore we all are born into this world united to Adam, united to the first Adam. One of the consequences of being united to Adam is we receive the guilt of his sin. The gavel of God's judgment went down upon the whole human race when our first parents sinned. We also 
have corrupt natures. We are totally corrupt or totally depraved. And I mentioned that when we confess you know, the doctrine of total corruption or total depravity, this doesn't mean that we are as bad as we possibly could be or that unregenerate man is as bad as they possibly could be. Rather, this means that every part of us has been tainted with sin, has been affected by the decision of our first parents. Our body, our soul, our mind, our affections, our will, every part of us has been tainted with sin, and consequently, we are totally unable to choose the good. We're totally unable to choose a right relationship with God. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 3. He says that unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Paul says very much the same thing in Romans chapter 8 when he says that the flesh, the flesh is hostile to God. He says that the flesh cannot and does not submit to God or his law. Thus, we are totally corrupt and totally unable to choose the good, to choose a right relationship with God. This is original sin. This is what we considered last week. Now, how does God respond to original sin? How does God respond to this human predicament that we find ourselves in? Well, Article 16 is very clear. God responds by showing himself to be who he is. And who is God? He is merciful and just. God responds to original sin by showing himself to be who he is. Merciful and just. And so now we are going to consider God's mercy in election. God's mercy in in election, which is one of his responses to original sin. Now, if what we confess about original sin is true, if we all are tainted and and fallen and corrupt in Adam's sin, then it stands to reason that if there's any hope for restoration, restoration into a right relationship with God, it's not going to be because of our doing. God is going to have to act on our behalf, which is what he does in election, which is a manifestation of his mercy. So look with me again at Article 16 of the Belgic Confession. Uh, The confession goes on and says that God is merciful. He's merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel, has elected and chosen in Jesus Christ, our Lord, by his pure goodness, without any consideration of their work. This is a very, very helpful definition of election. What is election? Election is God plucking us out of our state of sin and misery without any consideration of our works, without any consideration of our inherent character. Election is not God looking through the channels of time and choosing to elect those who choose him first. That's not election. That's not what we confess here. In fact, Martin Luther once very helpfully in his 95 Theses contrasted God's uh, reactive love versus creative love. 
God's love is not reactive. It's not as if God looks through the channels of time and chooses to set his love upon those who are worthy of his love, upon those who of their own free intuition desire a relationship with him and and make that first step towards him. God's love is not reactive. It's creative, Martin Luther said. God's love, uh, God sets his love upon a people who are wholly detestable, unworthy, corrupt, and undeserving. But he makes something holy and beautiful out of that, uh, that corrupt mess. God's love is creative. And that's what we confess here in Article 16 of the Belgic Confession. And notice further that the, the, the foundation, the ground of our election is not our human will or exertion. It's not an, any inherent goodness or, or, or wisdom or intelligence that we have. It's solely based on the unchangeable purpose of the will of God. That's why you are elect. That's why you have experienced salvation. It's because of the unchangeable purpose of the counsel of God's will which is ultimately for the praise of his glorious grace. Now, where do we see this in Scripture? Well, in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, which we read earlier, Paul references Genesis 25. In Genesis 25, we hear about the birth of um, Jacob and Esau. And God chooses to set his love upon Jacob, but he passes over Esau. He elects Jacob but he leaves Esau in his state of original sin. In fact, in Malachi 1, God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And notice that this decision of God was made before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose would stand. Now, what's your gut-level reaction to this? Does this feel unfair to you? Does this feel unjust to you? How can God make this eternal decision apart from their choosing, apart from even them being able to prove themselves or not prove themselves? How can God make this decision before they're born? It feels unfair to us. It feels unjust to us. If that is how it feels to you, then you can resonate with the anticipated objection that Paul responds to in the subsequent verses. So listen to what Paul says, beginning in verses 14 through 16. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul knows that our reaction to this is going to be, that's unfair. That's a breach of God's justice. But notice what Paul says, by no means. By no means. The pertinent question here is, who is responsible for salvation? Who is responsible for salvation? Is salvation a work of God alone, or is it a work that you and God uh, work on together? Do you do a little bit, and does God do the rest? Think of it this way. Imagine there's a small, small little city, small little town, a couple thousand people, and the mayor of that city chooses, it's Christmas time, chooses to give every resident in city limits a little gift. However, you have to go to city hall to pick up your little trinket of a gift. Now, what's going to happen in reality? 
well, maybe a quarter of the residents will actually take the time to drive to City Hall and pick up their little trinket. Uh, most people probably won't deem it worth their time to go to City Hall and pick up the gift. Is that what salvation's like? Salvation's possible if you do your part and go to City Hall. Or is salvation like the mayor sending your gift to your front doorstep so there's no way in which you can refuse it? Paul says in Ephesians 2.9, he says this, and the this stands for salvation and Eve in your faith. He says this, this is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. The reason why salvation is completely, 100% a work of God is so that you cannot boast. If you made the first step towards God, then you would have something to boast in. You are more wise, you are more intelligent, you have more inherent moral goodness than all of those millions of people who do not have the sense to choose a relationship with God. You, rightly, would have something to boast in. And thus you would contradict what Paul is saying here in verse 9. The reason why salvation and even your faith itself is a complete work of God is so that you would be utterly humbled. So that you would have nothing to boast in. Salvation is a work of God. Well, God not only responds to our predicament, God not only responds to original sin by manifesting his mercy in election, God also uh, responds to original sin by manifesting his justice. So notice what we read in Article 16. Uh, we confess that God is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall into which they plunged themselves. So this, this is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of reprobation. That's the corollary to election. And reprobation is the opposite of approbation. What's approbation? Well, it refers to being praised or accepted. Reprobation then refers to being condemned. And so the manifestation of God's justice is sometimes summarized with this term reprobation. So notice this the short definition that we're given here in Article 16. The Guido de Bray connects it to God's justice. Reprobation is the manifestation of God's justice. And therefore, if whatever reprobation is, if we have a problem with it, we really have a problem with the justice of God. All reprobation is is the manifestation, the outworking of this attribute of our unchanging God. Furthermore, notice that that reprobation is not God actively hardening hearts. Rather, it's God passively leaving people in their sin. So sometimes we say, uh, theologians say that election and reprobation are not equally ultimate. And what, what we mean by this is that in election, God is active in working grace in the hearts of his people. In election, God is the sole cause of salvation. But in reprobation, God is passively manifesting his justice by passing over the rest. In reprobation, God is not the cause of people's unbelief or sin. They are the cause of their sin and their unbelief. So notice the difference. In election, God's active. In reprobation, God is passive. 
we want to be very clear that God is not the author of sin. He's not working unbelief in the hearts of sinners as he is working grace in the hearts of sinners. Now, sometimes we respond to this, this doctrine, God's mercy, God's justice, election, reprobation, and, and we expect God to be merciful at every turn, and we are surprised, even outraged, that God would ever manifest his justice in this world. However, our expectations should be reversed. We should expect God to be just. That should be our baseline expect, uh, expectation, and, the, and then we should be absolutely astounded that he shows mercy and grace to anybody. What is mercy and grace? Well, mercy and grace are undeserved and unexpected gifts. If we make God's grace deserved and expected, it's no longer grace. Well, where do we see this in Scripture? Where do we see this in Romans chapter 9? Well, if you look with me at verses 17 through 18 of Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul uh, continues, and he says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Notice what character Paul brings up to, to defend this teaching. Pharaoh. Now it's really interesting when you read the Exodus narrative of, of Pharaoh and Israel and Egypt, the author goes back and forth. Sometimes the author tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and other times, the text says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you walk away thinking, well, which one is it? Who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? Is Pharaoh hardening his own heart? Or is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Was well, both. How does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, again, remember the definition of reprobation. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, not by actively making him sin or disbelieve, but rather God hardens Pharaoh's heart by passing by him, leaving him in his sin, removing his presence from Pharaoh's life and leaving Pharaoh to his own devices. And what do you think Pharaoh is going to do left to his own devices based on what we confess about original sin? Well, he's just going to harden his own heart. That's very in character for someone who is unregenerate and depraved, who has experienced um, um, having Adam as his father. And so you see that both Pharaoh and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart after God passed by him and left him to his own devices. Well, we again might react to this doctrine and think, but why? We might have a million questions at this point. Okay, I understand God's mercy and justice, election, reprobation, but why? Why doesn't God just save everybody? Why, why is it that God, God is glorified, most glorified by condemning some or leaving some in their sin? That just doesn't make sense. Well, Paul knows this, which is why he continues in verses 19 through 21. You will say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
Paul is reminding us here that when it comes to this doctrine of election and reprobation, there is a ceiling upon which our cognition will not transcend. I'll tell you straightforwardly right now, most of the questions that you have relating to this topic will not be answered in this age. Why? Because the Bible doesn't answer those questions. We have to be content with what has been revealed. That is what Paul is saying here. We are to be content with what has been revealed. And this is a theme that we've been coming back to over and over again in our confession. Remember God's simplicity. How do you fully wrap your mind around God's simplicity? That he's all of God, God is all of his attributes all at the same time in such a way that there's still a distinction between them. It hurts our head. Think about the Trinity. God is one essence, yet three persons. Again, there's a ceiling upon which our cognition will not transcend. Or God's providence from a few weeks ago. God is, the, uh, God is not the author of evil, but yet he is sovereign over evil. That God is working all things for your good, even though you don't understand what that good is. Again, we're not going to fully understand these doctrines. And so it's much the same way with election and reprobation. We are to be content with what has been revealed. We will be able to answer the what, but not, necess- not necessarily the how. And thus, what it means to be a disciple of Christ is we're content. And we make judgments based on not mere speculation, but what has been revealed. Revealed in the word of God. And so in summary, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, this article very helpfully frames this issue in a pedagogically useful manner. It begins at the beginning. It begins with the fall of Adam. It begins with original sin. How does God respond to original sin? Well, he responds by showing himself to be who he is, merciful and just. God expresses his mercy in election and his justice in reprobation. Now, as we conclude, I'd like to uh, just touch on one more point. I think uh, it's important that we recognize that this doctrine is given to us to comfort us. It's not given to us to terrify us. It's not given to us to uh, shake our faith. It's given to us to comfort us, to build up our faith. And so if this doctrine is not comforting to you, then you are not understanding it correctly according to what's been revealed in the word of God. Now related to this, a pertinent question that we may have asked in the past, we may be asking right now is, am I elect? How do I know that I am elect? How do I know that I'm not just one of those people that appears to believe for a while, but ultimately I'm just like Esau and I'm going to walk away eventually and and be condemned and I can do nothing about it? Right? How do I know that I'm elect? And here, John Calvin very wisely answers this question. This is how Calvin responds. He says, Christ then is the mirror wherein we must and without self-deception may contemplate our own election. And so if you're wanting to know, am I elect? If you're seeking assurance, don't look within. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to your moral goodness. Don't look to your works. Don't look to your love. Don't look to the quality of your faith. Don't look to your experiences. Look outside of yourself. Look to Christ as he's offered to you in the word and the sacraments. As you look to Christ as he's offered to you in the word and the sacraments, you will see your election as in a mirror. That's what Calvin is telling us. And thus, this doctrine is meant to be a comforting doctrine. 
a doctrine that builds up our faith and humbles us at the majesty and graciousness of our Lord. Let's pray.